0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We're looking at five verses this morning, verses 1 through 5. You can find it on page 530 in the Bibles provided there in the chairs. Uh, If you've ever wondered to yourself, is the Bible really practical? Is it relevant? Uh, You know, does it really kind of break down and and meet me where I'm at? Today, there's going to be no question about that whatsoever, okay? Um, You know, we live... And one of the two wealthiest nations in the world, there's there's some debate as to whether or not China has surpassed us, but the United States boasts of $17.5 trillion a year of spending power. All right. Our per capita GDP is over $54,000 per year. The median household income in our nation is $51,000 a year. And our poverty rate is down to 14.5%. Now, if all that just blew right over your head, this is what it all boils down to. All things factored in, America and Americans are very well off financially. We have a lot of wealth. okay, But... That's only one side of the story, isn't it? Though we are in the top two wealthiest nations in the world, we're also one of the deepest in debt. That The U.S. debt clock is over $18 trillion and climbing. The average American citizen, if we were to try to pay that debt off ourselves, per citizen, that would be $56,000 that we would have to contribute. For every tax-paying citizen... That would be $154,000 that we would all have to contribute to pay off that debt. That's a huge amount. USA Today, well, I mean, I should say this. But this is not just a, a national problem, though, is it? This is, this is an individual. This is a, a, a problem of its citizens as well, right? The USA Today reported that the average debt in the U.S. per household is $53,000, Now, 70% of that is is mortgage debt, but that same article also reported that one-third of all of these debtors are delinquent on their payments. Recently, CNN reported that the average American household with at least one credit card has nearly $16,000 in credit card debt. The average interest rate is mid to high teens at any given time, making it very, very difficult to pay that off. Students have an average of $29,000 in student loan debt, but you know, that's okay, right? Because the university promised me that I'm guaranteed a high paying job when I get done. So I'll be able to pay that off. No problem, right? It's worked out pretty well. I mean, don't worry about the fact that you're starting out 30K in the hole, right? <laughs> Banks are so willing to loan households as much as they possibly can that mortgage payments, mortgage payments can reach up to 40% of a household's monthly income. And so what that means is you can have a house that you can't afford to live in. Friends, this is insanity. We are a nation in debt. And then you add to that loss. Over 1 million file for bankruptcy each year. Two-thirds of those are granted by the courts. 660,000 declare bankruptcy and are granted it each year. One out of every 100 houses will be foreclosed. Repossessions are so plentiful that I couldn't even get accurate statistics, but everything from cars to microwave ovens are being taken away because people cannot pay for what they've purchased. Thousands lose big in the stock market. It's reported that Warren Buffett once lost $2 million in two days in the stock market. People risk big. Big. To follow Disney's dream, or Disney's promise that your dream can come true, it can happen to you. But what they realize is that they've woken up to a nightmare, a financial nightmare. So how, how are we to live well in a nation of debt? How are we to live life to the fullest? When everywhere around us they tell us that you need to have it all and you need to have it all right Now, how are we to live wisely in a world of plenty, but in a world of high interest payments? And why on earth does God even care? These are the kinds of questions that we're going to be seeking to answer from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Friends, Proverbs has a lot to say about wealth, a lot to say about money, far more than we could possibly deal with today. In fact, so much so that I actually put up a blog entry, redeemerchurch.wordpress.com, where I have three pages of notes, and they're just basically citations of passages in Proverbs that deal with money. Three pages, single-spaced. We can't possibly deal with that this morning, but one of the aspects that, that, of wealth that it talks about is debt. And this passage is warning us not to be quick to give a financial pledge because if we do, we're responsible to pay it back and it could wreck us can absolutely wreck us. In short, he's telling us a very, very obvious truth, one that we just kind of know intuitively, that financial carelessness leads to financial ruin, and so get free. It's pretty straightforward, right? I even have a bumper sticker version for you this morning. If you want something far more easy, right, something you can slap on the back of your car, here it is. Debt is dumb, okay? Smack that right on your bumper. Or... You can go with, financial carelessness leads to financial ruin, so get free. It's an obvious truth, right? We get that. We kind of know that, right? We grow up sort of learning that, but it's also obvious from our lives that we don't always live according to that truth. And some of us here found ourselves enslaved to it. And so we, we need to read and we need to be receptive to God's financial wisdom for us. So with that, let's read Proverbs chapter 6 verses one through five. It says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, And plead urgently with your neighbor, give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. I hope that just in reading that you can see the the main idea from this passage, financial carelessness leads to financial ruin, so get free. Now, the text is fairly simple, so I want to keep our outline and our time together fairly simple. I only have two points, two, two wisdom principles that flow from this passage, and the first is this, do not enter into financial agreements carelessly. Now, I, I, I hate how that sounds. It sounds so how-to-ish, right? And it's like, who is this? Is this Chet or is this Dave Ramsey? Well, unfortunately, today, it's a little of both, uh, <laughs> But it's really, it's it's the word of God, you know, and and we want to live by it. So the first point, do not enter into financial agreements carelessly. Friends, our heavenly father, the God of all wisdom, does not want us to live foolishly. He does not want us to give ourselves over to futility, over to things that lead to death. He wants us to live well. He wants us to live life to the fullest. And so he gives us wisdom so that we might know how we can live the lives that he has created us to live. Lives that reflect his glory, that reflect his wisdom, that reflect his goodness and his provision. And if you've been reading through the book of Proverbs, you know, if we've put out that challenge there saying, hey, as we're going through the book of Proverbs and our time together as a church, let's just read through a chapter of Proverbs every day as it corresponds to the, day, the day's date. And so today's the 18th, so read chapter 18. If you've been doing that at all, which we'd encourage you to do that, then you realize that, that God has something to say. God's wisdom applies to every single aspect of our lives there is no stone that he does not leave unturned. God cares about everything from the, the, the friends that we have to the way that we speak, to the way that we spend our time, to the way that we spend our money. He cares about it all. He has something to say about it all. And this passage is certainly no exception. In fact, this passage is so specific that often we can just move past it without really considering the depth of wisdom that it has for us. Now, that being said, it didn't mean that as a pastor and as a preacher, I didn't have a hard time knowing how to preach this text. I want it to be redemptive. I want it to be life-giving and not crushing or moralistic. And then you've got this, this bigger issue of, of in terms of context because verses one through 19 are a break in a larger discussion on the issue of sexual folly. Right. Last week, we spent an entire... Chapter, chapter five, devoting our our time and our energy and our thought towards sexual folly, And then he's gonna take this break here in verses one through 19 only to pick up that issue of sexual folly again in chapter six, verse 20. And then he's gonna continue it on all the way through chapter seven. That's a huge amount on that issue. That's a lot. And so why on earth is this text, one through 19, crammed right into the middle of it? It's a big issue. And then when you look at the context itself, verses 1 through 19 and what it's actually talking about, it gets even more confusing because verses 1 through 5 tell us basically don't co sign on loans. Verses 6 through 11 tell us not to be sluggards but to work diligently. And verses 12 through 19 warn us not to sow discord and strife. And then it goes back to sexual folly. So here's what he's saying to us don't commit adultery, don't co sign on loans, don't be lazy. Don't stir up strife. Don't commit adultery. Oh, and by the way, don't commit adultery. Okay, thanks, Dad. Got it, right? And so why is this here? I mean, was the guy that sort of put Proverbs together, was he just kind of like really busy at the time? And, you know, he had, his, had everything kind of together, and then somebody's like, oh, wait, you forgot verses 1 through 19. He's like, oh, oh, what do I do? He just shoves them in there? Well, no, I don't think so. It gets put there purposefully. Because all of chapters 5 through 7 are concerned about protecting your well-being. About protecting your hearts. About protecting so as not to jeopardize your future. That's what they're all about. Key words like stranger, being caught up or being captured. They're repeated and reinforced throughout all three of the chapters. And so... Like Bruce Waltke in his commentary on this passage, I believe that God intentionally placed verses 1 through 19 into this larger discussion on sexual folly. So that we would understand that these warnings about careless financial dealings and about idleness and about strife are just as important and just as dangerous for us as the warnings against sexual folly. This will lead to death. This will ruin your life. This will enslave you just as much as sexual folly, right? Foolishness, laziness, malice, all of it just as bad. And so don't be a fool. Listen to God's wisdom and live well. That's why it's here. And so God tells us, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you've given a pledge For a stranger, if you've snared, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Now to put up security or to give a pledge would sort of be the modern equivalent of co-signing for a loan, or perhaps It's giving a down payment for someone that you eventually hope to get back. You can't really afford to just give that to them, so you just kind of float that loan out there so they can get it back. But I also think it ties to the fact that we're trying to borrow. We give a pledge. We put a down payment as a guarantee that we're going to pay all of this back, and so give me the money. And perhaps you're doing it for a neighbor, someone that's very close to you, that you love, or perhaps you're just trying to help out a stranger. You know, you're sort of being a a good Samaritan, and so you sign your name and you give a pledge for them. But either way, you have made an oath for that person. You have made a promise to the lender for them, and you are bound to that oath. You have put yourself up as collateral. You have underwritten someone else's financial risk. You are going in as partners with someone who could default and it could bring you down. That's the point he's trying to make here. Like an animal in a trap, you are snared by the words of your mouth. Or like a prisoner of war, you have been caught in the words of your mouth. And what he's saying here is that not that you are in danger of becoming ensnared, that's not what he's saying. Like this there's a risk here, this could go bad, you just be warned. No, what he's saying here, what God is saying to us is if you have given your word or if you have signed your name, then you are already ensnared. You are already trapped. If you put up security if you give a pledge you have willfully chained yourself along with them to that person's debt you have as it says in verse three come into the hand of your neighbor your livelihood and your well-being are are in their hands they now have power and control over your life you have been caught in the trap you have been chained to the wall right alongside them Already we see here that debt is enslaving, whether you are the primary borrower or simply a cosigner. This is a big deal because Proverbs speaks to this a lot. I want you to keep your finger here, and I want you to flip with me. Proverbs 11, verse 15. Proverbs 11, verse 15 says, whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. Now again, we do have to keep in mind Proverbs are principles and not absolutes, right? This is these are just general observations of the created order by those who love and fear the Lord and want to live in always to please him. And so these are general principles, these are not absolutes, these are not maxims. But still what he's saying here is look, look, if you cosign, you're gonna suffer harm. But God has made it possible for you to dwell securely by not taking a pledge. All right. Flip it with me again. Chapter 17, verse 18. In chapter 17, verse 18, it says, The one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. So one who puts up security for another is a fool who binds himself before witnesses to paying back the debt. And that's a bad thing because you know what's going to happen. If you do this in front of your neighbors, they're going to be asking you, how's that going? You know you got to pay that back, right? Chapter 20, verse 16. Chapter 20, verse 16 says, Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. What this is telling us is that that you hold that person to the pledge that he's made. Make sure that that loan gets paid back even if that person defaults. He must take personal responsibility. He's made an oath. He's bound to it. Chapter 22, verse 7. In chapter 22, verse 7, it says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave of the lender. See, there it is. A bumper sticker version. Debt is dumb. The borrower is a slave to the lender. Just a few verses down, 26 and 27 of chapter 22. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who puts up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Now, what he's saying there is like, if you co-sign a loan, you make sure that you can pay for that loan. Because if you can't, guess what's happened? They're going to come and they're going to take your bed and you're going to be sleeping on the floor. Or worse, they'll take your house, they'll take your car, and you're putting your family out in the streets. Chapter 27, verse 13. In chapter 27, verse 13, it says, Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for an adulteress. So this is very close to chapter 20, verse 16. Hold the man to his debt. But then he adds, especially especially if that man is spending that money on hanky-panky, if you know what I'm talking about. If he's spending it unwisely and immorally, all the more reason to hold that man accountable. And so we see there, debt is enslaving. If you sign on the line, you are responsible to pay it back. Now there's another non-inspired writing that speaks to this issue as well. And I think that they were probably reading Proverbs before they wrote it. And it comes from the Federal Trade Commission's website. It says, in co-signing a loan, you are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower does not pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure that you can afford to pay if you have to and that you want to accept this responsibility. You may have to pay the full amount of the debt if the borrower does not pay. You also may have to pay late fees or collection costs, which increases this amount. The creditor... (coughs) can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect it from the borrower. That's kind of scary. The creditor can use the same collection methods against you that can be used against the borrower, such as suing you, garnishing your wages, etc. If this debt is ever in default, that fact may become a part of your credit record. Right? Meaning, you'll ruin your credit. You won't be able to take out a loan if you you should need to. But friends, here's something else to consider. If that person who's applying for that loan actually qualified for the credit that they're wanting or needing right there, why are they asking you to back it? They're asking you because they can't afford the loan, or at least they can't prove that they can afford the loan. And if you can't afford the loan, then don't take the money. Now, there are exceptions, right? We're not looking at all of the loopholes and all the reasons why you might want to do that. We're just dealing with general wisdom here as it applies, right? But if banks are asking you for a cosigner, you are probably overextending yourself to take out that loan. That word cosigner, it ought to serve as a red flag for us. Don't do it, right? But going a little deeper, we have got to think more carefully about how the Bible talks about loans. The Bible does talk about loans, and it gives certain regulations for those loans. For example, it's fine to receive a pledge as a down payment for a loan. You're going to loan somebody some money. It's fine to receive a sort of a, a pledge, a down payment from them to guarantee that they'll pay it back. But if you loan money to somebody, you're not allowed to collect interest on it, according to Old Testament standards. And if you do loan money to those in need, you have to be ready to pay it back if that person cannot. Right? You've got to have enough money on hand that you could pay that debt if they're not able to. And you can look at Exodus 22, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 24, Second Kings 4, and Nehemiah 5 for that. But in general, we have to understand that, that securing debt was frowned upon. All right, the Bible doesn't make this distinction between good debt or bad debt. I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on it here other than to say, you know what? Uh, Yeah, I do think that there's a difference between good debt and bad debt, but yet we need to scale it back. We need to wisely scale it back. Not every good debt is a good debt for you. You need to think carefully about what you're taking out and do you really need that, okay? We'll get more into that as we go along. Loans in scripture, however, were used to help someone in need when you didn't have the ability to generously provide for them yourself. And so the biblical priority is, is generosity. It's sacrificial giving. You're trying to care for the community around you. You see that you've got this brother in need. He, he needs help there. You want to help him, but you can't help him. You can't afford to do it. And so as an alternative, because you can't just pay for that straight out, you go ahead and you float him alone until he can pay it back but even in that they had the year of jubilee from deuteronomy 15 that canceled out the debt every seven years and so if there was still an outstanding debt that year it's it it's gone wiped away clean and so extending credit and acquiring loans was done very very sparingly it was done as a last resort and you the creditor or the co may must be prepared to absorb the cost if they cannot repay So just know straight out front, culturally, that is very different than the mindset today that uses interests on loans as a means of commerce to build the economy. Still, God's wisdom remains. Do not enter into financial agreements carelessly. Examine whether or not you really need to take that loan or if you really, really need that much. Be careful. Be prudent, be wise, do not ensnare yourself. Now, in thinking about our own lives, why would we sign on? Why, Why would we secure debt? There are a number of possibilities. One is just like general foolishness. We just kind of go with what the culture tells us. We're just kind of careless about it, thoughtless about it. This is what everybody else does, and so this is what I'm going to do too, Right? This is just the way the world works, right? If you want something and you can't pay for it, you take out a loan and you use credit to get that thing. I want that thing. I need that thing. I don't have the money right now. I'm going to get a line of credit and then I'm going to buy that thing because I need that thing right now. That's the way that our, our culture just kind of operates. It's the way that it sort of works. But friends, that will make you a slave to the lender. And as Christians, we are called and we are enabled by God's grace, to live differently. Sure, we are in the world. but We are not of the world. By God's grace, Lord willing, he has taught us to think differently about money and about credit and about happiness in worldly possessions so that we live and look and think and believe and act and love differently than the world around us. We're meant to be different. The wealth of knowing Christ is better than the riches of this world. We know that it's futility. We know that it cannot supply and and really satisfy. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that he has freed me from these foolish attempts to find my soul's joy in the stuff that this world praises. He has given me his word to help me to see the foolishness of living just like those who still walk in darkness, who still make life about food and clothing and worldly success and entertainments and bigger houses and flashier cars. And so, because I'm in Christ, I want to live wisely. I want to steward all that God has given me, my life, my wealth, my credit, and I want to do that for his glory, for my joy in him. And not do anything that's going to enslave me or take my heart from that. Or maybe, maybe you secure debt because you want to help others. Right? That person is in need. I want to help that person. I don't have that money, but if I get that loan or if I co-sign for them, they can get the money that they need. Well, bless your heart for that. I mean, that's great. I mean, we, we as Christians are called to be generous. We're called to be loving and sacrificial. God wants us to be generous with all that he has given us. But that's just it. With all that he has given us, not with what he hasn't given us. If you remember back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, when we looked at that, we are to labor in order to provide. And and not just to get for ourselves, but we are actually to labor to give to those who have need. Right? We're called to do that. We're to be sacrificial. We're to be generous, right? But sacrifice, and it's good because it displays the character of God and so he wants us to be generous and sacrificial with the abundant blessings that he has given us but you cannot be generous with what is not yours. You cannot be sacrificial with what you do not have. Remember what it says in, in Proverbs chapter 3, Verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. Right? And so, what that's saying is, we have a covenant obligation. We've been cre- we have all, mankind has been created in the image of God. We, and especially if we're united in Christ and are now God's people, we have an obligation to care for one another. And we should want to do that and display uh, generosity and grace and mercy. You know, God's command in those situations for them is do not steal, do not take more than what you really, really need. And God's command to us is do not withhold. But then he adds the statement when it is in your power to do it. That's really key. Meaning, sometimes you are just not able. Sometimes you, you just don't have the means. And, friends, that's okay. You know why? You are not their savior, God is. You are not their provider. God is. The answer is not for you to go take out a loan for them or co-sign for them, but to give what you can. Maybe to inform others, other brothers and sisters around you of the need, but to prayerfully trust in the Lord who will graciously provide for their every true need in his own good and perfect timing. It's huge. Here's another reason Maybe you secured debt because you want that person to have the best. Again, not a bad thing. Parents co-sign for their kids just starting out so that they can have a nice house and a reliable car. It's not a bad thing. Right? We as parents, we want to we, we take out a larger mortgage so we can have a bigger house and a better neighborhood so that we can provide every opportunity for our kids. Not a bad thing. But we often forget. That God is near, that God is the one who truly provides. We forget that God uses each and every opportunity in our lives as a means of helping us to become more like Christ, to grow into Him. And, and though we mean well, oftentimes what we can end up doing is enslaving ourselves and enslaving them to debt. And we allow them to miss out on what God is doing. When maybe the reason why God has not provided the means for that house or the means for that car is because God wants to teach them lessons. He wants to teach them something more. And and when we take the easy way, And with our lives, what we end up doing is we we end up preaching a counter-message. When God wants to teach them patience, when he wants to teach them diligence, when he wants to teach them contentment and joy and perseverance and gratefulness for what they already have and personal responsibility, instead of allowing them to learn those lessons, what we end up doing with our lives is taking the easy way out. And with our lives, we preach convenience, comfort, materialism, and consumerism. And again, this is not to say that you can't, or that should, or that you shouldn't help your kids. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Only that we have to be very wise to make sure that we learn the lesson, and that we help them to learn the lesson that God wants to teach them about holiness, godliness, and personal responsibility. We can teach our kids immaturity and irresponsibility in the way that we come to their aid to provide for them. You've got to be careful. Other reasons why people might be tempted to secure debt might be pride. We want to look good in the eyes of others. We want to sort of swoop in and be the hero and kind of get all the accolades because we help somebody out. Perhaps we we use it as a means of power and manipulation. You know, it's like, this is a favor. I've extended this out to you and I'm not going to let you forget about it. Remember that time when I floated that loan to you? Yeah, you owe me. Perhaps it's greed. You have something to gain from it. Or maybe it's just excitement or risk-taking. You like the idea of basically gambling with your lives and theirs in hope of greater gain. Friends, the Proverbs and many other scriptures condemn each of these reasons. We don't need to look at them exhaustively. It's, it's foolishness. It's utter, utter foolishness. But why? I mean, why does God even care? Why does God care if I have debt or whether or not I co-sign for loans for, for other people? Well, friends, it's simply there in verse 3. God does not want you to live as slaves to anyone else. God, God does not want you to live in the hand of another. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, you will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You have one master and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And he is one that does not punish you and enslave you to exact your debt, but one who has, according to Job chapter 17, verse 3, made himself a pledge for you. That he has put himself up as security for your debt. The one and only son of God, Jesus Christ, came, lived a perfect life, a life that you can never live. And he sacrificed that life to pay the debt of your sin, your real debt, your true debt. Debt that you can never, ever repay on your own. So that you might be freed from it. He rose again to guarantee that, yeah, yeah you're, you're free from this debt that you can never repay. And, and so he's freed you then also from the snare of grasping for life through material gain. So why then? Why on earth would you place yourself again in the hand of another? But then there's another reason. God is our gracious provider. God has given us life and breath and everything. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from him. And what we end up doing is, is we neglect that, right? God has enabled you to work as a means of gain. But securing debt puts God's provisions, those things that he's given you, it puts them up as collateral. It's like gambling. You want to put it all up on red and I want to pray that the roulette wheel is favorable to me because I want to see it produce greater gain. More than what God can provide for me on his own. More than what he's willing to provide for me on, my own, on, on his own. And so I want to take what he's given me and I want to put it up there so that I can get more than what God is so graciously willing to give. It's squandering what God has given you because you think that it's not enough. Our attitude, our heart attitude is not if we have food, clothing, and shelter with these, we will be content It's the idea that we need more food. We need better clothing. We need bigger houses and a better lifestyle. And so we take an easy way to gain by signing on the dotted line. But even there, even there we're not content. And in the process, we risk losing all that he has already graciously given us. Do you really need all that you are indenturing yourself 4. Can that which you're seeking to gain through debt, is it worth it? Can it provide for you better than he has, that he can? Is it more satisfying to your soul than he is? Does it bring lifelong lasting joy or does the new car smell wear off? It just becomes another thing. Friends, be careful here. This doesn't mean be stingy. Proverbs has a lot to say about that too. Can't get into it here. All right. But instead, God is calling us to be careful. And again, this is not an absolute command to never, ever, ever take out alone under no circumstances or never co-sign for other people. That's not what I'm saying. But instead, God is calling us to be wise. God is calling us to be prudent. God is calling us not to enter into financial agreements carelessly. And so just, just by way of, of practical help, look, if you're considering taking out a loan and you have specific questions, please talk with somebody. We'd love to just be a practical help to you in thinking about that. I'm not, again, I'm not going to come to you and say, never take out a loan. But I am going to question whether or not that's wise. And it's not because I don't love you, it's because I do love you. I care very much about what you're going to do. So I want to help you to think carefully about your potential financial agreements. We as a church, we want to do that, okay? Now, if you find yourself in the snares of debt, friends, there is hope. The second point provides some wisdom for you. that It tells us, get free from financial entanglements as quickly as you can right? Unfortunately, there is not an easy way out of the debt trap. I wish I could say differently, but there is no magic eraser that can clear all of your payments. Jedi mind tricks do not work, right? Lenders, they're like Tridarians or the Hut. Mind tricks do not work on them, okay? So we've got to be careful here. God loves you, and God has forgiven you all of your debts. But in, but in Christ, your sexual, folly, your financial folly, He's been nailed to the cross. But they, He doesn't usually remove the consequences of our financial foolishness, and that's not because He doesn't care. It's because He wants to teach us financial wisdom. He wants us to help. He wants to help us to learn what He has for us, and and sometimes that comes through pain. <laughs> verses three through five says that if you are ensnared by financial obligations of debt then do this my son and save yourself for you have come into the hand of your neighbor go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor give your eye no sleep or your eyelids no slumber save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter like a bird from the hand of the fowler says do whatever you can to get yourself free as fast as you possibly can Now, if this is King Solomon writing here, and I I do believe that it is, okay, he was one of, if not the richest man in the world. And what does he say to his son, the king to be? He says, get out of your debt. He doesn't say, don't worry about it, son, I'll take care of it for you. He says, no, you get out of your debt. I mean, could you imagine, right? Could you imagine if Bill Gates said this to his kids? Could you imagine if the media found out that Bill Gates said that to his kids? They would crucify him as a miser and as a bad parent. But King Solomon is not saying this because he's selfish. As if he's like sitting there on his big old mound of gold and he's saying, no, this is mine, you get your own. He's saying this because he loves his son. He wants to teach his son personal responsibility. Like our heavenly father He's trying to teach his children to take responsibility for their financial decisions. And so with great urgency in his voice, he says, go. Get out of this obligation as quickly as you can. Do not sit around and just hope that all things are going to work out. Get busy. You have been ensnared by this. You have handed yourself over, your life over to a lender You've got to get free, and so go. Do what is necessary to rid yourself of this. That word hasten there it means to humble yourself to the point of bowing down in the dirt or wearying yourself to the point of exhaustion. Since if you have debts piling up, you don't wait for the perfect job just to come along. You just take a job, you're not picky. You don't, you don't say to yourself, well, I'm overqualified for that one or, or that one's really beneath my education level. No, you take a job, right? A job is better than no job. And I know that our government's trying to help you out and all, but employment is still better than unemployment. It's better for your family. It's better for your soul. So you need to do it. He's basically telling us that beggars cannot be choosers and we need to be willing to do whatever we can, including choking down our pride to provide for ourselves and to pay off this debt. Next he says, plead urgently. Pester him, badger him. Don't let go of them, right? Call, leave a string of messages on their answering machine, wait outside their office, chase them down the hall, but make sure that they don't call security and throw you in jail because that would not help you out. But do whatever is necessary, plead with them to get them to let you out of this debt. You know, this made me think about medical bills, right? Right? You know, you go to the hospital. The hospital, like, you know, you broke your arm. Hospital, you get the bill later on, and they want to charge you like $8 million because they took an x-ray and they put a cast on your arm, right? And so what do you do? You go, you humble yourself, and you plead with them to reduce it. You say, listen, I, I don't have insurance. What's the cash rate for this? And they, and they end up selling with you for like $200, 53 cents, a stick of gum and the lint out of your pocket. Now, I'm using hyperbole so that no one thinks that I'm quoting exact figures here. But you get the point, right? You plead with them. You do whatever is necessary to free yourself from those financial entanglements. Verse four, he says, Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Saying, Listen, work really, really hard, work long. Get a second job. Live on rice and beans if you have to. Now, don't neglect your soul. Don't neglect your family in this process. But until you get this debt under control, you've got to put in more than 40 hours a week. Being chained to a job is better than being chained to debt. Because at least there you're being productive. And you're not living as a bird in a cage. Students, i got to say this to you. Because there's so many of you here, and student debt is is sort of a necessity, sort of. Don't just load up on debt, right? Don't take as few loans as possible. Don't load up on debt thinking that you'll just have a great job when you're done. And so for now, what you're going to do is you're going to take out extra so that you can enjoy and make the most of this college experience. Friends, that is a lie, okay? I want you to remember this fraction, four-thirds. You got that? Four-thirds. This is an estimation. It's a conservative estimation. It could be more, it could be less, but this is a pretty good average, four-thirds. What this is, is what you need to multiply everything, like you need to multiply this to everything that you purchase on loan money. Everything. Because that's what it's actually going to cost you in the end. That's based upon a 3.5% interest rate and for a 20-year payment plan. Now, if you have a lower rate than that and you pay it off more aggressively, well, then you can reduce that ratio a little bit. Maybe it'll go from 1.33333 repeating to 1.25, but still, you're multiplying. If your interest rate is higher and you take longer to pay the 20 years, that ratio is going to be higher, but four-thirds... So what that means is if you're living off of loan money and you go to McDonald's and you want to buy a $5 cheeseburger, that means that it actually costs you $6.67. If you go to the mall and you see this great sale, oh, look at that. This is like 33% off for that brand new blouse. Guess what? You just paid full price for it. Don't be deceived by it. If that's true with blouses and cheeseburgers, then that's certainly true with books and clothes and gadgets and a and apartments, and weddings. I'm amazed by how many students pay for weddings with student loan debt. It's like, oh, wait, just got to multiply it by four thirds. That's what it actually costs me. Now, I'm not saying this to freak you out. I'm saying this to help you, to help you to get a handle, to realize what's taking place here. And so what that means is for some of you who are in college, perhaps perhaps it's better to work first and, and to save up so that you can pay out of pocket. Or maybe it means to slow down and to work while you're in school rather than piling up so much debt. You don't want to start off life in the hole. Most, if not all of you, are going to want to start a family. That requires things like vehicles and houses and kids are expensive. Where's that money going to come from? you it just going to take out more loans? Let's just increase the fraction. Five-thirds... Six-thirds, that's two. (laughs) Nevertheless, those things cost money. Don't be fooled by the university's promise of a guaranteed high-paying job when you're done. If you do, you may end up living in your parents' basement working a retail job to pay back that 80 grand that you took out for the next 30 years of your life. Don't hold out hope of Obama's promise of free tuition or that college loan debt forgiveness. Man, that sounds great, right? Don't hear this as a political statement. I don't mean it as a political statement. I'm just using it as an example, okay? That sounds really great. You probably vote on it, right? But guess what? That money has to come from somewhere. And I've already stated that our government doesn't have it. So where is it going to come from? It's going to come from the taxpayer, right? We figured this out. It comes from the taxpayer. So what does that mean? That means if you vote yes on those things, what you're doing is you're requiring everybody else that actually pays taxes to co-sign on your loan, to pay for your debt. Should they be responsible? Should this nation be responsible to pay for your debt that you accrued because you wanted to live it up and have a great college experience? The obvious answer from this text is no, not at all. And I should also add this. If, if someone is co-signed for you, then you need to seek to free them from that obligation. Give them freedom as much as you can. Verse five says, save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. You see, just like a bird or a gazelle, we were meant to live free from such imprisoning constraints, bird was meant to fly, the gazelle was made to run, and man was made to be free, to work and to live off of the generous provisions and abilities that God has already given us. Man was made to worship God wholeheartedly to find our joy and satisfaction in him, to be grateful and content with all that he has given us, not to squander it away in the hope that we could gain more from the fleeting pleasures and possessions of this world. Man was made free to love, to cheerfully provide for others. Our ability to love others generously and sacrificially is constrained by our debt. We can't do it. Man was made to go where God would have him to go and to do what God would have him to do. But because we are chained to our financial folly, we cannot make his kingdom known throughout the world or seek the joy of his people's. we were not meant to live this way. We were not meant to live in the hand of another. He has made us for so much more. Christ has delivered us from our true debt. He has freed us from the foolish notion that life is better lived with all of the world's stuff than it is with him. He has made it possible for us to free ourselves from these burdens and he offers us up this security that his grace will be present and will be sufficient to help us to live faithfully in his hand rather than the hand of another. And So because that is true, let's not exchange true riches for financial ruin.